Good afternoon. You are listening to WVEWLP Brattleboro 107.7 FM, your community radio station. And we are at one o'clock and this is Indigo Radio. We are deepening understanding and making connections. We're on the air every Sunday at one o'clock. We are also on any time on iTunes um, podcast and SoundCloud or wherever you get your um, your podcasts. So we are a group of educators seeking to learn through engaging with others in our community and throughout the world. And you can find us um, also on social media at on Instagram and Twitter and Facebook. The views and opinions expressed on this program are those of the host and guests, not the radio station. My name is Nina Kunimoto. Um, I'm a graduate student at University of Massachusetts in Boston, and I teach in the Spark Teacher Education Program. And I would like to introduce um, my co-host and a guest. Um, We'll start with Bailey Saddlemeyer. Hello, my name is Bailey Saddlemeyer. I am a Keene State College alum. Uh, I studied psychology, criminal justice, women's and gender studies, and sociology. And I am a former member of the Truth, Reconciliation, and Equity Collaborative on Keene State College campus, which works on restorative justice across the, co- across the school. Great. Thank you and welcome. And my co-host, Patrice. Hi. Hi, Nina. I'm Patrice Streifert, and I also am a part of the Spark Teacher Education Group, and I teach as an adjunct at Keene State College. I'm so happy to be here with you and Bailey. Great. Welcome. And um, Patrice, do you want to give us an overview of what we're talking about today? Yes, this is the second part of a four-part series on uh, reproductive health. Um, And the first part was on the 10th of August. Yeah, and, and we spoke with um, a group of youth from um, from the area and to find out, you know, sort of ask what how it impacts them as people who just graduated. Um, from right, the high Supreme school. Court decision, mm-hmm. right. Yeah. Yep. And today is the second part and we're talking today about the importance of women and gender studies programs and the recent decision to remove the women and gender studies major at Keene State College. Also a little bit about what historical amnesia looks like in in this day and time. The third part is going to happen on the 28th of August. Yep. And Perpetual Anastasia is going to talk, and she's a doula and a black feminist. Yes, and she'll be talking to us about her work and sort of how she thinks about what's happening currently in the U.S. as a doula, but also um, uh, as a black woman. As a, yeah. yeah. And then the last part, part four, is going to be on the 18th of September. And Dr. Olya Clark and Anna Mullaney are going to talk about the linkages of reproductive health, abortion, public health, and the social and political forces that impact that. Exactly. Great. So join us for all of those. Yes, please do. Um, and please spread the word. Um, you know, it'd be great to have more people listening and more people engaging in this in the world with us. Um, so before we get started uh, today, for today we interviewed um, Professor Karen Kangelosi. Uh, could you tell us a little bit about you worked with her? So yes, yeah. um, Dr. Kangelosi and I worked together in the Women and Gender Studies program, but we also worked when Keene State had a President's Commission on the Status of Women. We had a Diversity Commission. 
and uh, we took a group of students to Mexico together to study women's lives, um, took some Spanish courses, and Karen's been a longtime activist for women's rights um, and LGBTQ rights, and so she's also was instrumental in getting the women's and gender studies uh, program up and running when it when it came to fruition at the college. Great. So we, um, Patricia and I interviewed her um, at a different time. So we pl- we'll be playing her interview as well as sort of engaging Bailey and Patrice right. who worked with Karen um, very closely. So we're going to start out with a song. Um, I love this. Well, she is part of mm-hmm. a group, but Taina Asili, I used to um, perform with her, a different kind of music, but she uh, performs We Are Rising, um, which is a song about one billion rising, um, and it's a song that celebrates our collective energy, creative resistance, and solidarity as we rise against the tides of violence against all women, climate crisis, racism, and corporate greed. So here we go. In a time of an upheaval, we'll come a transformation. Ignite a It's weird. 
resist discrimination Those who survive labor exploitation Colonization and gentrification Imprisonment, migration and militarization Homophobia and transphobic aggression Violence by police, reproductive oppression But from the pain we will open eyes Awaken hearts and awaken minds And that demands we intensify Strategically we are organized Together we can raise the vibration Through our action and imagination Respect, trust and communication And love for our future generations Intersectional, inclusive, we come Collective power is how this is won We keep it rising like the fire of the sun We will rise like the sun, we will rise like the Welcome back. You're listening to WVEW LP, Brattleboro, 107.7 FM, your community radio station. And that was Taina Asili, uh, We Are Rising. And um, she does come to Brattleboro. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the diversity coordinator here, Michaela Sims, invites her annually to perform and give workshops at the high school. And she's amazing. Um, if you can watch her video, um, that's Beautiful, beautiful images. Um, Patrice, if you want to sort of give the, uh, the listeners a little synopsis again. Yes. So we're here talking about the recent um, decision at Keene State College to eliminate the women and gender studies programs, the importance of women and gender studies programs, particularly at this time. Um, and I love the song, too. Oh, my gosh. For those of you that music gets you going that got me going the cool. transformation the whole idea of and i of actually before i t- i've totally forgot i just sort of want to link this to sort of the you know sort of sort of the end of the show like when we talk about sort of the linkages between yes. you know she brought up in, in terms of like labor rights and environmental rights and all these things that are really connected to, right. to gender um right so yeah great um, so what I'm going to do is we're going to play um, a little bit of our interview with Karen. Great. And, um, and we will come back and, and sort of talk about some of the things we think about the conversation. So looking at your perspective, having been a faculty member for many, many years uh, in higher education, working with students in both biology and in the Women and Gender Studies program, but you also have a long history of working with, um, you know, women's rights, and you've been a, as you said, a marcher and a chanter and a a singer, a writer of song um, in in support of women's liberation and women's um, voices and LGBTQ. So, wanted to hear a little bit about the historical ways that you feel like you were involved in the movement. Uh, for sure. I didn't know yeah, you were think- but um, I've certainly known you over the years at King State and, and I've appreciated my work with you and have learned a lot. So thank you again for being with Thanks, us. Patrice. Thank you, Patrice. I've certainly yeah. learned a lot and enjoyed working with you a lot. 
We yeah. did some amazing work together. We continue to do amazing work together. I think the word is activist, not just nurture and chanter, but to like be active and be activists in this work that we do. And I, I feel like I have identified as an activist for more decades of my life than I've been identified as anything else, honestly, even as a professor and teacher, I was an activist before then as a student, you know, so, um, and so uh, I just, you know, I can tell you if you want a little bit about my history and like why I've been an activist and, you know, the recognition of the need to continually fight for fundamental rights for, um, for oppressed people around the world, right, which has included women, it's not exclusive to women, but certainly women, um, LGBT people, um, non-gender conforming people, trans people, a lot of people in these oppressed places, and obviously people of color, BIPOC people, indigenous people, like, so there's a lot of, um, a lot of oppression out there. I've also been an environmental activist, so the need for us to be able to um, have a functioning democracy means that we need to have people that are keeping an eye on what happens in the world and who's making decisions and who's making the laws and who makes these rules that control our lives. And so it's really uh, kind of disheartening to see what's happened in the erosion of women's rights in particular. And as you mentioned, Patrice, I, I, um, you know, for a long time in the 80s, it was the mid 1980s that I was one of two co-founders of the Cincinnati Coalition for Choice uh, because of the threat on women's access to abortion, all the threats. I was living obviously in Ohio at the time and there are states that kept trying to roll back rights for abortion. And, you know, even though I myself wasn't uh, planning to have children, wasn't planning on getting pregnant. <laughs> um, as a lesbian, a lot of us in the community um, weren't having children, although lesbians can have children these <laughs> for sure as well. But, um, but those of us that were in the community felt that the right to choose whether or not to have a baby is a fundamental human women's right. It's not just uh, it's not just an issue around whether or not you're talking about life. Like it's often portrayed that we love babies. You know, there was so much hatred that would be spouted in those days. Like, oh, you just want to kill babies, which is, of course, absurd. Right. So um, at the time, it's like we, we talked about how important it was for women to be able to control their bodies. And so we used to do clinic defenses. We work with Planned Parenthood. We work with NARAL, the, the National Abortion Rights Action League. We organized marches. We had buses of people going from Cincinnati to Washington, D.C. We organized local marches. <laughs> when I eventually arrived in uh, New Hampshire many years later, I continued to do this kind of work. We, we taught students in the classroom in women's and gender studies programs at Keene State. We had activism kinds of efforts and classes. I'm, I'm like covering a few decades of history in just a few short sentences here. But I, th I just think it's really important for people to understand that um, the the overturning of Roe v. Wade is, is, is really a huge, <laughs> a huge, huge setback. Um, and, and it's kind of it's kind of interesting to note that, um, you know, countries that have been uh, prohibiting abortion, um, pretty much all of the countries that have severe restrictions in place for abortion are in places that have had a rise in authoritarian leadership. Right. So that's not a coincidence. 
right? Like it's not just about protecting babies. If this was just about really about protecting humans and babies, like you would not see this alongside just authoritarian leadership. You know, obviously um, women care deeply about their children. And so the, the, the decision whether or not to bring a child into the world and whether to terminate a very early pregnancy after just very early development or even mid-development, it, it's not about whether or it, it's not about so-called pro-life. If if people that were, you know, touting these positions really wanted to protect the lives of people they wouldn't be prohibiting abortion, which actually leads to more death, more destruction, and, and more misery for more people across the globe. And that, that's just so clear. There's just so much data uh, to support that. So, Yeah. And, and if I might add, like, I don't know if you, you watched Trevor Noah on the, I think the Daily Show, but he was like, I, you know, I don't know if you saw his video of, um, you know, th- that, that, the people who are, are are trying to outlaw abortions, like they care about the the child while it's in the womb, but once you know, the once they're born, who the gives body, anything? Right? Nobody cares. Healthcare? That's nope. <laughs> yeah, it's such a contradiction. Yeah. And even when women's uh, lives are are threatened by the pregnancy, the giving birth, they don't really uh, they don't care about the woman, like woman as vessel. Right. So it's really this is just all indicators about that. This is about control and this is about not not wanting women to have rights. There's a really interesting study in in 2020 that was done by the um, the Pew Research Center and they surveyed over 3000 people. And, you know, when you look at what people are thinking, they asked them a lot of questions about gender equality and they're still like in this survey, there's still like 77 percent of people uh, feel like sexual harassment is a number one issue out there. Like wait, women are still being harassed, the Me Too movement, right? Um, but what's interesting in this study is that um, three out of 10 men in this study say that women's gains have come at the expense of men. So there's a lot of backlash happening out there, right? This is like a, a broad survey cut across a variety of Americans. You know, 3,000 people isn't the biggest sample size, but it's a pretty good chunk. And if you've got 30% of men, it's like 40% of Republican men, but 30% of men generally um, are angry that women have gained in rights and feel like their personal, like every time women have gained in a right, they've lost. And so you can see where this anger and this backlash is coming from. And Roe v. Wade is just one of these uh, pieces that has come as a, just a political move on the part of people that want to take rights away from women. And, and it's it's infuriating, really. I told Patrice, yeah, I'll come talk about this, but it's probably gonna make my head explode. <laughs> yeah, well, two things you said also, uh, fundamental rights and yeah. a functioning democracy. That's and right. When you think about that in the relationship of a functioning democracy to education, and as an educator, and as a person who's been very involved, um, one of the things that has happened recently, which um, at King State College, is that they did away with the women and gender studies major. And yep. so, a lot you've been involved in those conversations for many years at King State. But I'm wondering if you could talk about what you think the con- connections are to higher education and, yeah. and those fundamental rights, and the way that students and and young people view their connection to that. 
Um, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I, I feel like it, it is no coincidence that we see both the loss of the women and gender studies program at places like Keene State and the loss of the right to an abortion, like Ro the dismantling of Roe v. Wade. Like that is, those are both in line with each other, right? The idea that who, who really wants to prioritize the rights of women? We hear this, oh, well, we want, we want to care about everybody's rights. It's all rights, you know, like all people. And as I mentioned, of course, we want to be focusing on the rights of the oppressed and uh, on our trans communities and uh, on people of color and BIPOC. But to, to, to dilute out the fact that there are particular instances like abortion access and sexual harassment, other things that can affect um, women disproportionately, to dilute that, to pretend like that's not a thing, is, is really fundamentally damaging. And so by getting rid of the women's studies program, by saying it's not really a priority, that, oh, we don't have enough students interested in that, right? Like, oh, we don't have enough numbers because of course how they're promoting it and how they're supporting it and how they're billing it is influencing those numbers as well. And so, you know, it's reflective of this societal position as a whole that, oh, we don't really need to protect women's rights anymore. They've all been won, right? In spite of the fact that rape statistics are up and sexual harassment and women are being discriminated against in the workplace. And they're still making, you know, what, 70 cents on the dollar to men. In spite of the fact that this data still exists, there's a huge movement to pretend like it doesn't. And the erasure within our institutions of higher education I think is such an atrocity because where else do we have the place to really fight this? I mean, the, our institutions and in teaching in higher ed, in the classroom, the ability to, to teach people to think critically, and they, they know how powerful it has been for us to work in educational spaces, which is why critical race theory has become, you know, an illegal touchstone for people. They they know that in high in spaces of higher ed, what we're trying to do is teach students to think critically, to examine what's going on in your world, to ask the question why, to think about why do these people have more than those people? Why are these structures in place? To question that and to confront it. Those are the kinds of critical thinking skills that we want to give our students. And so it makes it's not it's not surprising that there are authoritarian conservative forces that are just trying to destroy our institutions of higher education, either either wholesale or piece by piece. And the destruction of women and gender studies programs are part of that dismantling. And then, you know, and then you'll hear, well, we don't have enough money. We got a business to run here. Right. So like, what is that about? Like, are we running a business or are we trying to be a public good? Like, what does it mean for education to serve its function as a public good for, for others? And that's why the public should be supporting it. And that's where the dollars should be rolling. And and instead of to say, oh, this isn't really important. And, and so there are political forces that have been slowly eroding at higher education Obviously, changing demographics have influenced enrollments as well, but there are forces that are much more sinister that have also been at work. And I think that if we ignore that, you know, we continue to be in trouble. And so we need activists now more than ever. <laughs> oh, we've always needed activists, right? But we still need people to be paying attention. 
Welcome back. You're listening to Indigo Radio on WVEWLP, Brattleboro, 107.7 FM, your community radio station. And I'm in the studio with uh, Patrice Dreifert um, and Bailey Saddlemeyer, who was a Keen State student. Are you still a Keen State student? You've graduated. Graduated. Okay. And we're here today um, talking about reproductive health, um, but specifically in regards to women and gender studies and more specifically at Keene State College. And you were just listening to Dr. Karen Cangelosi, who was instrumental in um, starting the women's and women and gender studies program at Keene State College. Um, and so Patrice Stryford and Bailey um, have both worked with Karen. So actually, to just get us started, I thought, you know, Karen um, started out explaining um, why uh, Karen became an activist. And so I'm just kind of just to get the conversation going about this, like how did you both, what sparked you both um, to becoming active? And obviously you minored in women's studies and you are definitely sort of, you know, you are in part of that department. So please. Well, when I was in high school uh, and, and when I was raised when I was little, uh, I was a part of the Unitarian Universalist Church. Um, and basically the seven principles uh, of that church say, treat other people with kindness, treat people like they're human beings and treat the world correctly. Um, and so that really kickstarted my activism work when I was young. Um, I had these amazing leaders in my life who were queer and who were people of color, um, who really taught me the ways of the world and the ways that I need to be looking at the way I live my life. Um, and that just continued within college. The women's and gender studies courses were my most important courses. I consider them to be at the college. Um, because they opened my eyes to really the way that the world unfortunately works in a lot of different ways um, and taught me the ways that I can become an activist and the ways that I can possibly change the way that the world works for the better. Great. Oh, let's see. Oh, I'm 67 now. Let's see. It was a long <laughs> time ago. I went to Meredith College, which is a women's college in the South in Raleigh, North Carolina. And the Vietnam War was hopping, and it was the activism around the war that um, got me going. Remember, tie a yellow ribbon round the old oak tree. You don't remember that, Nina? You don't no, remember that, Bailey? No, I don't. It was, <laughs> so we were tying yellow ribbons around the old oak tree saying, bring our troops home. And as a singer and songwriter, I became involved in the anti-war movement. And luckily at the college at the time, believe it or not, um, in the 70s, there was a, a female vice president who started, and there were only six black students in the college, who started um, a diversity group, and we ended up being very active in doing an unlearning racism. And this was in the 70s, which was pretty profound. It changed my life um, and made me look at what it is to be white, what it is to be living in the South, what it is to um, be in solidarity. Um, so that's, that was a long time ago, but it certainly has stuck with me. And certainly Work with Spark has continued that. <clears throat> yeah. Um, so tell us, uh, you know, Karen was talking about um, the women's and gender studies at, you know, and, and 
at Keene State. So do you want to tell us a little bit about what, what your experiences are and what, yeah. Yeah, I certainly agree with Karen that there are forces that are dismantling, if you will, or piecemealing and saying, well, we've, we've done this, we've got this, we've, we've had, we don't need this anymore, we need equity studies, so we've got, we're going to relabel it or call it something different. So I definitely agree with that, and, and I, um, we actually wrote a song together, Karen and I, called My Body Is Mine, and the other day we were talking about it, she said, but I'm not sure it is anymore. And so I think there's this idea that it is about control, the, the, the issues around health care for women and reproductive rights has never been about babies' lives or women's lives. It's been about control. Yeah. Um, so with the Women's and Gender Studies program, my experience has been just beautiful the entire time, um, except for the ways in which the program itself has been treated. I worked really closely with Patricia Pedroza, um, who is one of the, I think she's the chair of the, um, of the Women's and Gender Studies program. I worked with her on re some restorative justice work. And I remember when I was being interviewed about the work, she very strongly was saying, please push Women's and Gender Studies because she knew something was coming. She knew that there was something that was coming that was going to possibly eliminate the program. She was very worried about it. And I remember her being very adamant about me pushing the program. And I just remember saying, like, absolutely. This program has changed my life. It's been what has shaped the way that I view things. It's, it's the way that... Um, the way that I was able to learn about criminal justice and the way that I was able to learn about sociology from a completely different lens, even being in classes that were the same as my peers. Um, and so the program has just been absolutely amazing and it's something that I value beyond anything within my education and it's just really upsetting to see the way that it's been treated um, and the way that the major has been eliminated, especially seeing the way that my peers have reacted, my peers who are women's and gender studies majors, who came to college because they wanted to be women's and gender studies majors. I remember when I was looking at colleges when I was a senior in high school, I came to Keene State because I knew that there was a women's and gender studies program because it's just so important to me. And so um, it's really disheartening to see the way that the college has treated the program and the faculty within it who really didn't get a choice when it came to the inequality studies uh, major being brought into the college. Anything you want to add, Patrice? Um, just that I think the, the work that we do now as as at the college that is only a minor, you know. It's, it's like those courses are full. They continue to be full. And so I think that the students will be the ones that are going to continue this work. Oh, continue. Sorry, I'm drifting away from the mic. Sorry. <laughs> That's okay. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. And I think, as Bailey said, the students have been the, the driving force behind the conversations to keep the major going. It's, it's not a dead issue. Mm -hmm. It's still, the students are pushing very hard. Great. Yeah. Well, <clears throat> this is a good segue into the next part. We're gonna take a, a song break, um, and then we're gonna continue listening to Dr. Kangalosi, um, and we, t we shift the conversation to talk about um, historical amnesia, you know, and, and why education is so important um, in terms of just you know, so not, we don't forget the struggles of the past because um, that typically leads to, uh, into a bad direction 
like Roe v. Wade being overturned. So we're going to um, take a break with a song by Cindy Lauper. Um, this is a song called Sally's Pigeon, which appears on uh, Lauper's 1993 album Hat Full of Stars. And the moving song was written about a friend of hers, of Lauper's, who as a teenager got pregnant and ended up dying from a back alley abortion. Even though um, more a song of a mourning than a direct protest, it does draw awareness that making abortion illegal or limiting access to them doesn't stop abortions. So here we go. When I was eight, I had a friend with a pirate smile. Make believe and play, pretend we were innocent and wild. Hop the fence and slam the gate, running down my alleyway in time to watch Sally. We love to watch them dive and soar Circle in the sky Free as a bird from three to four And never knowing why Neighbors pulled their wash back in Put away my Barbie and Ken Look out overhead while Sally's pigeons fly I had a fool's confidence that the world had no boundaries but Began to skip to the beat of the boy next door. She had her eye across the street on someone shy and tall. We lived our dreams and challenged fate until she told me she was late and silent letters pigeons out. On the dresser sits a frame with a photograph Two little girls in ponytails Some 51 years back She left one night with just enough Was lost from some back alley job I closed my eyes and Sally's pigeon 
Welcome back. You're listening to Indigo Radio on WVEWLP, Brattleboro 107.7 FM, your community radio station. The views and opinions expressed on this program are those of the host and guests, not the radio station. Um, Today in the studio, we have Patrice Streifert and Bailey Saddlemeyer, um, who both uh, were part of Keene State College and part of the Women and Gender Studies program. and that was a song by Cindy Lauper called Sally's Pigeon. And, you know, I, the song is about um, a friend of hers who got a back alley abortion. And something that really struck me, I was actually listening to some, a podcast about um, people, it's a Canadian podcast about, um, you know, abortion doctors who were murdered, assassinated. Um, and so I was listening to the story of Barnett um, Slepian, um, and he was snipered in his kitchen. Um, and what was fascinating to me was he wasn't a feminist and he was quite conservative. Um, he, but he, he provided abortions because he knew what Cindy Lauper just saying about is that regardless of whether there's a law banning abortions that women are going to to find a way and it's a way that is unhealthy and 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 dangerous and so i think that that gave me a huge perspective i think um you know that he might not be fully for abortions but he knows that that it's a health care issue you know so um Yes, so we're going to uh, continue um, our conversation with Bailey um, and Patrice, and um, we're going to go back into the interview with um, Dr. Karen Cangalosi, um, and uh, she talks a little bit about historical amnesia. And so if you can both think about that um, in terms of you know what you think about historical amnesia, why is it important? for people to actually know history. So for example, in my uh, class that I'm teaching currently, and you know, it was Roe v. Wade was overturned during this class. And it surprised me that most of the students, not all, but most, probably about 90%, 95% of my students did not know that abortion was illegal prior to Roe v. Wade, that you know, there were back alley abortions, that, um, that it was new information to them. Um, and so, you know, that's sort of also part of um, the, the struggles were lost on them, I think. So, yeah, if, you could, if we could think about that as we listen to the next part. Here we go. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So those are all the formal questions I had. I don't know if there's more conversation. You know, global climate change is upon us. Okay. Patrice, um, little technical difficulties, as we always have on community radio, if you could please um, 
talk about some of your thoughts and I'm going to figure this out. Sure thing. So, um, you know, one of the things that, that you had said to me, Nina, in terms of struggles of the past, you said to me something that has stuck with me. You said, you know, every time I vote, I think people died so that I could have this right. So it's like, how do we, if we don't know the historical roots of the past and what those struggles are, why would we continue to struggle? What, what would we organize around? Why, why would we do that? And, and even more importantly, why do I believe that's important? So I think, you know, in terms of being an activist, it's, it's more about being clear about what it is that you're fighting for. What are the struggles that are motivating you today? And if, if you don't know, that there were, as you said, your students back, back alley abortions or very, um, you know, dangerous ways in which women are trying to take care of their health, then you don't see that as an issue or contraception even. I mean, I, I Planned Parenthood, thank God for Planned Parenthood in my life, you know, because I didn't have a lot of money when I was young and growing up and that's where most of my health care and, and um, contraception and all those things were provided. Mm-hmm. So, great. Yeah. Well, I think the timing on when I was editing it and the timing the, on this is different. So I'm just going to play it and we'll see where we'll we see are. Where we go. Issues and things that they can address in the real world. You know, higher education could have so much more power and potential than it does right now. And so I know I'm kind of really going off on a tangent from your original question, but I do think that giving students time and space and support and agency to do the things they're passionate about can can just be incredibly powerful for for them and for us and and for our society, for sure. Hmm. You know, when you were talking, Nina and I had a conversation before this conversation, and I think, Nina, you asked the question, how do we learn to defer to, say, the Supreme Court? Mm -hmm. I mean, they're not elected individuals, but we defer how, the, the, the global question of how, how you know, taught. how we're taught, mm-hmm. as you say, to defer sure. to someone else's, you know, list of, of values or. Right. And I, I mean, if I might add, you know, in the last summer, uh, somebody here showed the, well, the short documentary called The Takeover, <laughs> The Takeover, which is, you know, about the Puerto Rican um, young lords taking over the um, Bronx hospital because they were just, I mean, the conditions were just so bad. Mm-hmm. You know? And um, I mean, one of the conversations, we had a conversation with a filmmaker, <clears throat> you know, and one question was, you know, with an institution, I was like, at some point, if a student asks, right, can we do this? There may be a time when the institution says no, yeah, right? And absolutely. This, this is like K to 12. And so like, what are the examples that are out there where students take, take over. That's right. Do it anyway. You say, no, I'm going to do it anyway. And I totally would support that. Right. Like that's, that's civil disobedience. And those are the times at which it's not okay for you to say no to me and to recognize that we we had times even at Keene state where a big group of us stormed the president's office because they weren't paying enough attention 
to some of the discrimination that was going on, that they had invited certain anti-Semitic speakers onto the campus. And we were like, this isn't okay. You know, and we were looking at, I can't even remember all the details of that situation, but, you know, going in there and saying, yeah, we're going to take over. (laughs) We're going to run the campus. We're going to have a sit-in. We're going to have a walkout. You know, I, I I often say this too, like, you know, Greta Thunberg, who, who was the big uh, student activist for climate change at 13 years old, right? Um, the school climate strike, she called it, right? Like, what does it say when our students feel that the most important way to be an activist is to not be in school, to skip school, to have a school strike, mm-hmm. not to be able to do the work that they want to do in school, the, the most important work that they saw was to shut the schools down and do it out of school. What does that say about our educational system when that's the case? And and the, the other piece that you were talking about is the historical perspective and how, you know, those of us that worked in, and like you said, chanted and became activists and do what we need to do to sort of push it, push forward, even when you feel somewhat hopeless, or even when you feel like, yeah. well, maybe this won't make a difference, but I have to do something. It's not easy. Yeah. You, you um, I, I think, Nina, it was you that said to me, you know, every time I vote, I think somebody died oh, for me yeah. to be able to do this. That stuck with me. Huh? I'm like, oh, my God. Yeah. You know, and so do we, as Angela Davis said, have this historical amnesia, I think is what she called it, Absolutely. that we forget. The, yeah. the struggle, the whatever you you call that, um, I, I call it struggle, but some people call it challenge, or some people might feel like, okay, well, this has been done there's before. A, Why do there's we have a lot of historical amnesia, right? A lot, a lot, and and when you see instances of it um, not happening, like seeing the Pope apologizing to indigenous people. And if you caught that in the news and it's like, wow, mm-hmm. like somebody actually acknowledging this history that we've erased for so, so long. Mm-hmm. And that, again, that is a, that's a tool of oppression is to have people, Oh, just forget about that. That, Oh, that's not important. Oh, that happened so long ago. Who mm-hmm. cares anymore? Like those right. are all right. our tools. Yeah. And I think, um, Welcome back. Um, you're listening to WEVWLP, Brattleboro Indigo Radio, 107.7 FM, your community radio station. Um, that was Dr. Karen Kangalosi, um, where Patrice and I interviewed. So, please, your thoughts. Well, I, I think, I don't know why this came to me when I was listening to Karen, um, in terms of looking at historically ways that people have organized, particularly young women on college campuses. That's where I've been doing my most of my work in the last uh, 20 years. And I remember at Dartmouth College, years ago, um, there were several rapes on campus that, that the students reported. And um, nothing, the dean of students said, well, it's nothing really we can do. And so the students and went to all the bathrooms on campus and wrote the names of the rapist on the back of the bathroom doors. Wow. And something actually happened then. As you know, you probably, I mean, Dartmouth's had its share, as most colleges have, of issues that go um, reported, that are reported that then aren't addressed. 
So there's an amnesia there on college campuses, too, within the history of, of our own institutions. Mm. So, and I'm sure Bailey has... Yeah, Bailey, what do you think, as a person who just graduated um, from college, what are your thoughts on that? Well, I think historical amnesia is one of the most dangerous things that can happen um, when it comes to education. Um, because if you forget about the struggles, then you don't really understand the rights that you have today and you don't understand where we've come from. Um, and in a lot of ways, um, historical amnesia is dangerous because you might not, knowing the struggles can, and knowing the victories can sometimes give you motivation to continue working. It's also possibly very discouraging when things like the overturning of Roe v. Wade happen and you understand that all of these struggles happen to make Roe v. Wade happen and then it's being taken away yet again. Um, So I think it's both discouraging and I think it's also motivating. Um, I think it's also really important that we don't forget about the atrocities that have happened and the genocides that have been committed and and the just absolutely terrible things that have happened in our history, especially in the history of the United States and the genocide of indigenous people and um, understanding that the founding fathers in a lot of ways are actually indigenous people. Um, I think that it's really important to be able to remember that and keep that centered when it comes to the work that we're doing today and understanding where exactly we've come from in that sense of history as well. And as you were talking, Billy, I also thought, you know, when we are connected with struggles of the past that we're also connecting to like a larger movement and a a larger story right and more something larger than us that that there are forces that that are at work you know that are be that are beyond us um but we also participate in it um so and and i just want to read this short piece by um india krug um, she wrote that individualism is the enemy of liberation and it's what anti-abortion forces are counting on. They're counting on abortion providers being terrified to accept patients and people being terrified to help one another. They're counting on people who live in states where abortion is protected or people who have the means to find safe abortions becoming complacent. Um, this movement needs to be centered around black, brown, and indigenous and, and working class people, or it won't work. We need to strengthen existing systems of community organizing and mutual aid. We need to ed- dedicate ourselves to learning how to best protect each other in the present and to planning how we can reclaim civil and legal abortion rights in the future. And I wanted to play uh, this um I guess it's a bit of a mini documentary. I'm not sure uh, from AJ Plus, which is um, uh, Al Jazeera, but it's it's about um, abortion. How Latin American countries, the the movements there have organized um, to make abortion legal, and Colombia just recently legalized, and so many countries. And so these are um, tips. Right. So suggestions by organizers in uh, Latin America to American organizers. Um, And I think that's one of the things is that, you know, in the U.S., um, the focus has been on legal rights and civil rights, as opposed to it being focused on health care, that abortion is actually health care. 
so let's l have a listen real quick um, how Latin America won abortion rights. The vital first step, organize, organize, organize. The groundwork for reproductive freedom began decades ago. This is partly because of a rich history of activists organizing across Latin America. Unlike the U.S., where a lot of focus is on whether or not courts find abortion bans unconstitutional, change in Latin American countries comes from the ground up. We work together as a region. So we have like this tradition of exchanges, experiences, and even symbols. Let's start in Argentina, a country with deep roots in Roman Catholicism. There, activists built up networks of organizers across the country. Leading the fight on the ground was a national campaign for the right to legal, safe, and free abortion. They're an umbrella group of dozens of individual organizations that sought to unify activists. And unity among activists was important because women weren't just facing restrictive abortion access, they were also facing unprecedented levels of femicide. In fact, at least nine of the 25 countries with the highest femicide rates are in Latin America. Ni Una Menos began as a rallying call, not one less, referring to the crisis of gender violence in the country. After uh, Ni Una Menos, we had a kind of explosion. So we started to grow and grow and grow and grow. Activists quickly recognized that fighting against femicide also meant fighting for abortion access. At the beginning, I think we never imagined what we what was going to happen. Like we never imagined a massive mobilization. And at the end of 2020, Argentina's Congress legalized abortion until 14 weeks of pregnancy. Next door, in more secular Uruguay, feminist groups partnered together with medical groups, community-based organizations, and trade unions. Latin America is a region that has a, a long uh, tradition of encuentros feministas, feminist encounters. And those encounters are like spaces and places where feminists from many different countries exchange strategies. But there's one big difference in how the U.S. fought for abortion access and how Argentina and Uruguay did. Roe v. Wade was argued on the basis of a pregnant woman's right to privacy. So basically, a person's right to choose whether or not to have an abortion. But in both Uruguay and Argentina, activists say that argument alone was not persuasive enough. We didn't convince people with the argument, my body, my choice. And this is where the second lesson comes in. Viewing abortion bans as a public health crisis and not just a personal affair. Organizers focus on educating the Argentine public on the health issues at stake. For example, government figures estimated up to half a million abortions were happening each year before legalization in 2020. And complications from illegal and unsafe abortions was a leading cause of maternal mortality in the country. This was also the case in Uruguay, where unsafe abortion caused an estimated 40% of maternal deaths in 2000. Well before legalization, doctors in Montevideo began counseling pregnant women on how to manage medication abortion, the use of abortion pills. Even though abortion was illegal, eh, the woman that has an unwanted pregnancy was a citizen and she has all the right to go to doctor or go to a midwife and have information. Medication abortion is low risk and has a high success rate. Women could purchase the medicine themselves and doctors counseled women with unplanned pregnancies on their options. We have to, to empower women and give uh, information. 
In 2004, Uruguay's Ministry of Health formally adopted this harm reduction approach of using abortion pills before finally legalizing abortion in the first 12 weeks of pregnancy in 2012. Activists, welcome back. You're listening to WVEW. Um, that was Al Jazeera, and it was a sort of you know a uh, how. Latin America won abortion rights and, you know, Im- uh, framing abortion as a public health issue. And we didn't listen to it, but empowering women and centering marginalized communities um, are really important. And so I just wanted to get reaction from both of you before our show ends soon. Uh, well, you know, Nina, you said to me in our earlier conversation, just focusing on abortion is the problem. It's a public health issue. I, I, I think that that couldn't be better said. Um, I mean, what is it to be occupied? You said, what is it, the women that are, were sterilized? And we know the history of that, but it's still happening. So I think that the focus is the larger picture, the larger puzzle, the larger framework that we have to keep sight of, or, or unity, as she said, I think, in, the, in mm-hmm. that particular Yeah. yeah. And, and like coalition building. Coalition too, yeah. building, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Billy. Well, I would say that this is true of a lot of different things, but I think that the United States has a lot to learn from different countries. And I think that especially like different activist um, organizations from different countries and different movements, I think it's really important to pay attention to what's happening in the rest of the world in order to improve the way that we are fighting for our rights in our own country. Great. Any last thoughts before we close out? Oh, Nina, thank you for the time. Um, I, I think this uh, raised the issue for me in that particular clip of femicide. Mm. Just uh, the, the, the intentional killing of somebody because they're female or yeah. girl. And we, that, again, the larger issue. Yeah. Um, and, you know, when they were talking about harm reduction, and, and sort of a public health approach. I also thought about the opioid crisis because it's being approached as a criminal, just criminal issue, you know, punishment, as opposed to a health issue, which they do in in Canada. And they have, you know, safe injection sites, which Anna and I interviewed someone at the safe mm. injection site center in Vancouver. So it kind of reminds me of that. And so again, like, you know, wh- what is sort of the, un- what is an underlying what is the fundamental thing that's holding all these things, the, the similarities and, and between all of them, I think is a question I have in my head. Mm-hmm. I would say the kind of link to that harm reduction is so important. And I feel like it's really centered in the idea of restorative practices and kind of being able to heal harms and not criminalize people because of the fact that they are experiencing addiction or because they um or because they're struggling i think the harm reduction is incredibly important um i just want to say thank you for having us on here um this has been a really amazing conversation and i just really appreciate being able to have this experience so thank you thank you bailey thanks so much and um yeah so tune in uh on august 28th we'll be speaking with perpetual um about what it's what does it mean to, to work as a doula in this period in this time when Roe v. Wade has been overturned, um, and sort of her perspective on on 
women's reproductive rights from um, a black feminist perspective. So thank you and join us um, next week, next Sunday um, for another Indigo Radio. And we'll we'll go out with um, Ani DiFranco um, Play God.